Welcome to the October edition of the Cinetopia Radio Show and Podcast. I'm Amanda, your host, and on this edition, show co-producer Jim Ross and show regular Simon Bowie reviewed films from the London Film Festival, including Emerald Fennel's Saltburn, as well as Martin Scorsese's Killer of the Flower Moon, as well as the film Eileen, directed by William Oldroyd. I also sat down with Paul Bruce, director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, and Jamie Robson, an actor who features in two films as part of the festival. All on the show, so stay tuned. So, Cenotopia has a few exciting events to announce. Um, first up, firstly, we'd like to mention that we're running our networking events as part of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival opening night. That's the 26th of October, which we've already shared on our social media. But if you haven't seen that, please join us. If you haven't even RSVP'd, that's totally fine. Just come to Summer Hall. That's, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that in the show. Next, and a really exciting one for us, we are bringing back our Cinetopia Doc Doc Club on a regular basis and now at the Cameo Cinema, which we're super excited about. And the first event and film we're going to be um, showing is Paul Sung's uh, Tish. So uh, Cinetopia Doc presents a preview screening of Paul Sung's latest film, Tish, which is a moving portrait of social documentary photographer and trailblazer Tish Martha, who dedicated her life to documenting the lives of working class communities in Northeast England. And we will show the film on the 2nd of November uh, at, uh, well, times to be determined at around 6 p.m. It'll be followed by a Q&A with the director, Paul, and additional time afterwards for discussion and networking at the Cameo Bar. Uh, this project is funded by the Film Hub Scotland and also the Scottish Documentary Institute. It's a project we've been working on for years. We've come in and out. Uh, we did it during the pandemic. We did it at Summer Hall, but we're super excited to be working with Cameo with this and very excited. So it'll be continuing on a monthly basis going forward. And we really hope that you come to this. Uh, finally, we would like to mention Rocky Horror Picture Show, which we announced earlier a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're doing that at the Voodoo Rooms like we did with Pretty in Pink. So that is a costume uh, celebration and party. And uh, there's more information about that, but we're also doing that with our friends Pastel Black. So it's a bit of showing up, having fun, and um, yeah, celebrating Halloween. So that's the 31st of October. So please come to that as well. So all of you, you can check all of that out on cinetopia.co.uk. So we're here this month, um, and right now I'm here with Jim and Simon, regulars on the podcast and show. You both saw certain films from the London Film Festival in different ways. So I thought uh, we would just sort of talk about those experiences, one actually being in London and one um, seeing it sort of through the satellite screenings in Glasgow. So um, mm -hmm. how, how has the London Film Festival been for the both of you so far? Oh, yeah, I've seen a couple of films at the Glasgow Film Theatre, um, which is, you know, I talked about it on this podcast, on this show before, but great cinema, wonderful um, 
wonderful place in Glasgow. We'd be very sorry to lose it uh, if anything happened to it. Uh, but it it was it was great. Um, sort of packed out screening for uh, Saltburn, which we'll discuss, and a not quite as busy screening for Eileen, but still a lot of buzz around uh, the London Film Festival satellite screenings that are going on there. Uh, for me. I don't think the satellite screenings have been as good as last year. Uh, There's not quite the same selection of films uh, for me, but maybe I'm just thinking about some specific London Film Festival films that I'm disappointed uh, haven't come to to satellite places around the UK. I'm thinking of... What have you got in mind there? The Zone of Interest, uh, Jonathan Uh, Blazer's new film, which I Mm -hmm. desperately want to see, uh, and The Killer, the David Fincher film. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think you got a point there. Actually, it's a little di- di- like when I looked at the um the program that was going out to like the satellite locations. I mean, don't wrong. There's plenty. Of, there's plenty of good films in amongst there, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but um, it was slightly disappointing. Like you know, because it was London. I've got to get this right in my head, but I'm pretty sure it was London Film Festival in 2019 where I saw. The Irishman, which of course would spend most of its life on Netflix. I saw The Irishman at Dundee Contemporary Arts, right? That was part of it. Mm-hmm, that was part mm-hmm. of that remote screen. It's a, and I feel like there's a few where they have been held back for London itself. Um, it feels like it. I'm, I'm thinking of last year where I got to see uh, The Banshees of Inisherin, yeah. Triangle of Sadness, and uh, Glass Onion, the Knives Out film, all at London Film Festival satellite screenings. And it it just doesn't feel like it's the same. I don't know. I don't want to say caliber because that's a loaded term, but it doesn't feel like the same range of films has yeah, yeah. come to satellite I th- cinemas this time around. I I think it's maybe just kind of a function of a lot of festivals or a lot of festivals like London, let's say, um, kind of getting back to post pandemic. You know, as post pandemic as we are, right? You know, um, post pandemic normality almost because even the online um so i so i I actually went to screen press screens in london right um because as as we've said i i i live in the shadow of mordor now um and i so i had press accreditation and even the online viewing library is a lot stripped back compared to how it was in previous years and it's quite interesting actually in the sense that there was still plenty on there but it was mostly the shorts program right there are features on there like there was michael winterbottom's new one uh girl which we reviewed as part of the glasgow film festival that screen at london film festival that's on the online oh. viewing library and i think it got sat did it get satellite screens as well i can't remember anyway, i can't remember not uh, it would I, matter I, for glasgow anyway because glasgow yeah i saw it a month ago so right? i didn't pay attention um, to it but the, the it the, it doesn't have a lot on it, even compared to actual pre-pandemic um, online viewing live streams. So it just feels like kind of like access and sharing of that sort of program is getting a bit locked down now. Anyway, um, and I don't really know what to make of that because obviously you need to have a balance between, you know, you need to have a balance between it being a film festival associated with a particular place and kind of sharing the cinematic wealth as it was as it were right but i think yeah. i think it's particularly important in the uk context because of all the pressures that we're seeing on you know the likes of the film i all these cinemas closing you know film festivals under pressure and the fact that so much goes to london i mean you couldn't possibly see everything there and there are films that like there's films at this festival i really wanted to see 
um, which, you know, through a combination of my own schedule and just kind of, you know, there being so much I'm not being able to see. Like, I want to see Fingernails, which is Christos Niku's follow-up to Apples, which we reviewed on the show, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to seeing. I want to see Star of Acre, um, where that's the second film from Daniel Cocatalio, who did... Um, apostasy a number of years ago which is another film i thought was excellent so you know it i inside i i see why i think it's a bit unfortunate and i think it's actually kind of going back to what even worse than it maybe was pre-pandemic in terms of how much people outside london can can see these films right and not not everybody's in a position where they've been able to go to can or Venice to see some of these things that the other ones that they'll they'll get you know so um yeah. it's definitely good i mean it's better there's not it's better the satellite screens have things and they don't but um yeah it's I great think to I, have I think satellite... I'd like to have seen a bit more yeah it's great to have satellite screenings and i take your point about uh the sense of place of a film festival uh and this being the london film festival but it is also the bfi london film festival with the yeah. b standing for british and it's it's somewhat disappointing that it's not more spread around the uh, the UK, and that there's not more of a a, a national feel to it, you know. And I I could criticise the BFI for its support of regional cinemas outside London, but that's that's a discussion for another time. One argument I would say in that is, um, you know, there are other film festivals that perhaps would be able to get the some of these films that London gets, you know, London gets, a, gets it because it's London Film Festival, it's BFI London Film Festival. Mm-hmm. But for example, I mean, I know, Jim, you know Cambridge quite well, but perhaps like Cambridge would then want to get a film that would have been part of, you know, something like the London Film Festival or those shortly after you just mentioned Glasgow, perhaps they would want to get those films as well and share them as part of their own festival as well. So it just, it's just maybe a thought of why they might be holding back some versus others you know like the ones that are about to come out like the big ones seem to be you know i don't i don't know that yeah well i mean like the example the example i'll give actually is one of the films i'll I'll talk about briefly because it was one you know it was one of the ones that i i saw it's going to come out shortly after the podcast it's scorsese's new one right the killers of the flower moon now it will get a theatrical release i think it's attached to apple tv plus so i think it'll probably kind of go on to that probably at some point after that and i think it's been distributed by paramount for the the theatrical release but um like for instance i don't really i I don't really see why that couldn't have had a satellite screen you know and that would have been you know that's a big film uh one night it's going to come out a week later sure but like if it's on for one night i don't think that's going to impact kind of the local box office hugely it would create a buzz around it you know and i think like one of the things that we appreciate about film festivals as a group here i think and one of the things that we kind of always want to have is that it is that kind of sense of buzz of like community around cinema everybody engaging with it and enjoying it and being excited about it and wanting to go to the cinema so to me, some of these films that have not had satellite screenings feel like a bit of a miss to me, you know? Um, that one uh, I consider a little bit odd. but Especially in the local con- the hyper-local context of Glasgow, the GFT has been doing Scors- yeah. Scorsese screenings every month for like the past year as part of a Scorsese season. So adding Killers of the Flower Moon as a kind of special... Like the, like the, the crescendo the of that film. entire, yeah, would have been great. Yeah. So, so yeah, I that that's that's really like yeah, yeah. And Amanda, your point's perfectly valid, right? Because there are some films here where I fully expect 
they will certainly come to film festivals like Cambridge. I mean, some of them are coming to Cambridge, right? Because I've seen the program and plan to take one's coverage of it right now. A couple of the films I've spoken about will be at Cambridge, right? So in that, that makes sense. But for these bigger films that are coming out like quite soon, like I think that like the Andrew, the Andrew High film, I think, All of Us Strangers, did it get a satellite screening? It did. I unfortunately did. couldn't make it, but... I, I you know, like, I don't really see well. why. Like, why would you give that? And, and I'm not saying this shouldn't have had a satellite screening. That's an example where I do think it should have had a satellite screening. But I don't really see why that got one. Others didn't. Other than like trying to retain some glamour for London. I'm like, well, you know, you've got the red carpet. You've got your, you know, all that. That's that's all still there, right? And I think Simon's point about it being, it, I mean, it is like that's the official title of it the bfi london film festival yeah. right you know it's it's not like smaller festivals in the city like uh you know london short film festival it's london short film festival and because of where it is it will probably get quite a lot of shorts for uk premieres and things like that but this isn't this is the bfi london film festival and the place i went to see killers of the flower of the moon was the national film theater one right you know um so in that sense I, I, I do feel maybe maybe a little bit more could have been done to create a national buzz around cinema, if I'm being honest, right? And I think they had some of the films to achieve that. I think the Scorsese one is a is a case in point, right? But you know. Also yeah, on it, that front, I mean, I remember the first time I went to the cameo, I saw a film, I think it was like a Beatles film, you know, a documentary, and they had sort of the red carpet streaming, and it was sort of exciting to go see like this live thing. And I know Scorsese and Greta Gerwig, they were all sort of there. So potentially that could have been a nice sort of element where they brought that conversation they had. I mean, I, I know that eventually it went online as well, but Scorsese had come and talked at that. Was that, were you at the screening where Scorsese was at or no? No, no, I um, I think he, I think I've got to get my timing right here. I'm pretty sure his his talk started in another part of the building while I was watching the film. I think it was on the same day, no. um, but I was doing my thing where the, the, you know, so the film is like well, when we talk about it, it's three and a half hours long, so basically I need to watch it and then I need to hop onto a train to get back home, pick my daughter up uh, before her nursery shut because it was a it was a proper proper chunky film, um, but yeah, I and. You know, they did some stuff around that with the Irishman when that did like they, they broadcast kind of like interviews and red carpets. So it was like a build up to kind of the film and they did it in Sinos. I I will be honest, I didn't care for it much, but like I can see how it adds to the sense of occasion. Some people who were in the DCA with me were clearly kind of, you know, engaged with it. Um mm -hmm. but yeah, I it's just stuff like that, it's not really it, I feel like there's been less of that, you know? Like um which is a little disappointing. I think that, you know, the zone of interest is another one, right? I mean, I really, if you do one screening of that, is it really going to impact the local box office that much when it does actually come about? And, it, you know, yeah, you know. I think the thought of having kind of festivals not only is about is about this buzz, but it's also about this live element to it. And so if you can bring that live element, then it might make it a slightly different than just a regular box office. But I, my guess would be also sometimes it's about the act, the the deals being made with these big films so mm -hmm. like if t will you know make a make a deal with the distributor for you know the new scorsese and it might be a more profitable deal than they would have made with you know london film festival which might have offered just you know a certain deal or something like that so i i i just wonder if it's a it's a little bit about 
saving those things for for other reasons. I think you're probably right. There's probably, I mean, you know, this is a, a layered and complex set of <laughs> legal contracts <laughs> underpinning this in the background, right? It's not like I'm saying, yes, create excitement about cinema, but unfortunately, there's a lot of bean counting and such that you know where that's not the primary goal. So no, you're you're probably yeah. you're 100 right. It's undoubtedly something that we don't really have the full grasp of. I would thought. And and you know, I don't want to be too negative about the satellite screenings. There are some some good films on there that I didn't have the opportunity to see, and that's just down to my circumstances. So the new Todd Haynes, May December, the new Kitty Green, the Royal Hotel, uh, the Andrew Hay film you've already talked about, um, How to Have Sex, Twenty Thousand Species of Bees. There's a lot of good films that I, I haven't had the chance to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, I would have actually, speaking of the opening film, I think it was Saltburn and you, mm. you saw it. Um, I would have just absolutely loved to go see it if it had been at Edinburgh. I think it was just a mm-hmm. little bit for me to, and sort of, you know, the cost and trains and whatnot to get myself, da- you know, to Glasgow. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm curious about how that, how, what you thought about that film and, and that experience of seeing it in, in Glasgow at the same night as as the as it was premiering in London, uh, yeah, like I say, this this was the busiest screening I went to at the the London Film Festival satellite screenings. The the it was sold out. You know, the GFT one was absolutely full, um, and it seemed like there was a lot of anticipation for it. People looking forward to seeing um, Emerald Fennell's new film. This is uh, the, the follow up to her debut, Promising Young Woman, uh, which we talked about on the on the show, as I recall. And I really enjoyed. I, I thought it was a very strong debut, so I was excited to see uh, to see Saltburn. Shall I get into it? Shall I give a brief overview? So Saltburn follows uh, Oliver Quick, who is played by Barry Keoghan. He is the kind of token working class student in his college, Oxford University. You know, he's he's got into Oxford through his uh, being intelligent rather than Byzantine systems of privilege. But that means that his classmates from wealthy families all look down on him. He doesn't really make, he makes one friend who's a kind of also a social outcast. But we follow these kind of social complexities of Oliver as he tries to navigate his time at Oxford. His social fortunes turn around when he befriends a charismatic posho called Felix, uh, played by Jacob Elordi, who invites Oliver to spend the summer at his family estate at Saltburn. And at this palatial estate, it's this huge mansion where you can easily get lost. And there's only like seven people staying there, but this is how how the other side live. And Oliver is exposed to this way of life that he's never experienced before. But there's this creepy sense of who actually has the power here. Is it the aristocratic uh, British family or is it working class Oliver who may have his own agenda? Uh, and there's kind of a sneaky reversal of uh, power dynamics as, as the film goes on. So I I really liked the start of the film. I think it starts stronger Oxford, capturing these social complexities of British universities and obviously setting out its soul for satirising British class structures in the way that Promising Young Woman kind of satirised toxic men and toxic uh, nice guys and... and the kind of dynamics of male privilege and sexual assault. This is clearly aiming at British class and the upper class specifically. 
I, I just, the, the problem with the film for me is that it fumbles satirizing those British class dynamics um, and in a way that undermines the, 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 the entire film. It's a very entertaining film, but it, it's, it's, its treatment of class is very broad at points and doesn't have the kind of incisiveness that I felt Promising Young Woman had towards a certain species of, of nice guy man. So there's kind of broad caricatures. Uh, Rosamund Pike and Richard E. Grant play the kind of mother and father, the posh mother and father. And they're very good. They're very entertaining. Richard E. Grant is having a whale of a time, but the caricature that he is playing is, is, becomes far too broad. Um, and it makes it difficult to buy into the satire that the film needs for its, for, for the root of what it's trying to say for its themes. There's also um, an intersection with race. So Farley uh, is a character played by Archie Madekwe. He is Felix's cousin, and he is an American black man who is also at Oxford uh, and is related to the family. And so there's this this complex question of how he relates to the family's is in, embedded in the family's privilege, but also in, in being black is not able to enter this this world of whiteness completely. And that's alluded to, but it's never really explored in any depth. Um, and it kind of underserves that character and underserves the, the entire theme about satirizing British class and the complexities of it. So for me, the film wasn't entirely successful. Like I say, it's very entertaining and I had great fun with it. Um, in terms of pacing, the pacing is quite uneven. It spends a lot of time building up, uh, and then the the kind of denouement, the ending, is very rushed uh, in a very inelegant way. But I had fun with it, uh, and there's some great performances. Barry Keoghan is terrific. Um, I mentioned the Banshees are in a show, and he he's gets a lot more to work with in this, and and pulls it off very well. Uh, Jacob Elordi is very good kind of grounding this poshness in a person who seems believable and yet is a satiric representation of this kind of Oxford poshness uh, and it looks great it, it's it. the film is shot uh, in this claustrophobic aspect ratio uh, that kind of mirrors the, the claustrophobia that Oliver feels in this strange environment but it just it, it doesn't work for me in the same way that promising young woman worked and i was ultimately kind of disappointed by that yeah no that's a really great early review of a film that i'm really excited to see and yeah because i loved i loved uh promising young woman a, a lot as well mm. uh it still I, kind of makes me excited to see it just some of the things you've been talking about absolutely so. i would say go go see it i, I think it's as I like to say, it's very entertaining. It's often very funny, uh, very black comedy in the same way that Promising Young Woman was at yeah. times, but also with this kind of fr psychological thriller edge behind it. Uh, and there's some very funny visual gags kind of speaking to the satire of British class. It, it just doesn't handle it in the complex way that it needs to be handled um, for, for the themes to really land. 
Yeah, and uh, it comes out actually November 17th. It's really great uh, to hear, and um, yeah, hopefully lots of people will see it and uh, in, in their cinemas near them. So, Jim, you saw another big film that um, London Film Festival got, the new Scorsese film that we were briefly alluding to. Um, and I know you're a big Scorsese fan, um, but uh, how, how, how did you enjoy that film? And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, which is based upon a investigative book of the same name. And basically what, it's, what it is, is it's a dramatization of the Osage Indian murders, um, which was basically a series of murders that span quite a long period of time, um, you know, that was kind of through the 1910s through to kind of the, the late 2020s, maybe in the 1930s, um, which basically all kind of centred around trying to move the, uh, the oil rights uh, that the Osage Indian nation found itself uh, in control of towards um, white people. And basically what we're following here is we are primarily with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Ernest Burkhart, um, who is the nephew of Robert De Niro, uh, William Hale, who's known as King and King of the Osage uh, Mountains. And basically then it kind of focuses on the way that this... Um, Indian nation, the the Native Americans of the region, are manipulated by white people who clearly don't feel like they deserve the wealth that they've they've gotten. Um, and Ernest, uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, basically falls for and is in you know by all accounts is in love with Molly, um, who's Lily Gladstone, uh, played by Lily Gladstone, and basically. <laughs> It kind of chronicles how Robert De Niro's William Hale is, you know, he presents himself as this friend of the Osage and, um, you know, helps to provide them with things and is a true friend and ally of theirs, but he's not. He's undermining them at every point and basically he is pulling a lot of strings in the background to try and get these oil rights to move to um, Molly and thus his nephew Ernest and how he takes advantage of them. Um, I'll, I'll kind of leave it there for a plot plot synopsis, because a lot happens in this film. It is very epic in scope. It is nearly three and a half hours long. Um, you know, like, like I think it comes in slightly short in The Irishman. Um, I honestly thought this was 
superb. Um, I really did think it was excellent. Uh, I mean, the first thing to note is the acting performances are engaging and committed and just excellent. It's it's fantastic to see DiCaprio and De Niro kind of like the two Scorsese muses of uh, recent years and decades, I suppose, uh, together. And they're playing roles that I think are quite different to roles that they've played with Scorsese before, right? Leonardo DiCaprio's Ernest is quite a kind of simple, um, easily manipulated man. He's not maybe the the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, Whereas De Niro's William Hale is kind of a, I don't want to say quiet, but very purposeful and deliberate and premeditated man, right? You're not seeing a lot of the, um, you know, the the violent outburst you might have seen in some of the more kind of like mob or gangster associated roles he's had. He certainly was certainly a very long way from the likes of Cape Fear here. Um, so th- that that's interesting of itself. The standout is definitely Lily Gladstone, though, right, who plays Molly, Ernest's uh, Native American wife, um, and basically it just it, the the layers of kind of manipulation and betrayal and you know um, arrogance that the the white people in this film demonstrate uh, in relation to kind of the the good fortune that the Osage have found themselves in is just put across superbly, and I think this. This layering, it, it, it's not, it's almost kind of, you've got two, the two main things of kind of like William Hale and how he exerts his power, right? And the kind of insidious way he goes about it. And then you've got, on the other side of this, you've got um, Ernest, his nephew, and basically how he is kind of slowly corrupted manipulated by this. He's certainly not presented as kind of like, you know, a good man who fell or you know it, it's it's not that sort of picture but it's just this uh, it's it does show how kind of like to a certain extent everybody um everybody who is white in this film is 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 um complicit in some way right and basically some more so than others but they're all falling to the same systemic issues that are put across superbly in in the film. I think the score is also excellent, um, done by Robbie Robertson, who is part of the band, who is of course profiled by um, Scorsese quite quite extensively. Um, it is three and a half hours long. I didn't feel a second of it, um, and that's another testament to Thelma Schoonmaker. Okay, the, the you know Scorsese's longtime collaborator, and I think you know she's as much responsible for the likes of this film and the Irishman and others working as, as Scorsese is in a lot of cases. Um it really is superb. Now I, I, I don't I don't really know what else to what else to put across. Um other than that, it layers in so many things about what I've already said. And he even finds time at the end to even like Scorsese finds time at the end to even kind of like question his own role in telling this story. Right, um, and I won't put across how because it's actually quite a quite an interesting moment. But it is actually kind of looking at the, the you know, is is he also complicit in kind of like you know going over this tale in such detail? Are we complicit in wanting to consume these sort of kind of like tales of true crime? And you know, do we engage properly with the impact it had on the people? Right, or is that in itself? 
is that in and of itself exploitative? He even finds time to to kind of weave weave that in at the end, and you know these these clashing ideas of kind of like this weird mixture that Ernest has of actually you know wanting to, loving and wanting to be protective of his wife and children, but also kind of that that greed which is there and is then kind of fed uh, by his uncle. And there's all sorts of little racist microaggressions throughout the film that are put in there that really kind of like, you know, put a very subtle texture on the entire kind of picture of this oil rights drama effectively is kind of like what actually kind of underscores it. You know, there there's slurs here, there's... You know the the KKK are kind of there just very briefly in an almost throwaway thing, just to show how the fabric of this society is unequal, and the fact that the Osage have found themselves with so much money is an affront to what many see in the film as kind of the natural order, and what they will do to re-establish that. Right? What are the 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 terrible insidious things that they they will do? Right? Um, it's also it's kind of a roll call of recent um, kind of Scorsese collaborators as well. Like Jesse Plemons shows up for kind of the the home run of the film as the F, as an FBI investigator, which also speaks to kind of like the interesting place that this sits in uh, American history, right? Because the book is is based on is actually called Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI, right? Because the FBI at the time this was happening was a completely kind of new concept as federal you know even when jesse plemons introduced himself he says it's called the bureau of investigation right the idea of it being the fbi is not an established thing so it it's fascinating from kind of the, the just uh a story and an acting standpoint it's fascinating from what scorsese puts across about american society then and even now and how certain aspects of that still being reflected now and even just kind of like where it sits in american history i think it's a superb film um and I wouldn't hesitate to recommend anybody going to see it. I'm trying to write a review of it right now, which will hopefully come out around about the time that we're broadcasting this, and trying to unpick all the various things about it is is quite the task, right? Because there's a lot of layers to this. I could be picking over this for ages, um, and I could be picking over the likes of Lily Gladstone's performance for ages. I think her performance is absolutely, absolutely superb. I couldn't recommend it enough. Just to get a sense of the film, I, I haven't mm. seen it. I, I can't wait to see it. But just to get a sense of it, is there another Scorsese film that you would say it's close to in terms of like tone or themes? In terms of tone or themes, it's a good question. I, it, it there is so I picked so when we did the the show, which was at the end of twenty twenty on Cinetopia, and we picked. Um, as both of you know, through different mediums, right? I hate needing to pick and rank things and kind of, uh, you know, making lists or something. But I picked The Irishman as one of my films of the decade. I, I, I think this is better than The Irishman. I, I, th- I think it, mm-hmm. I, now. I think in terms of the, the scope and the length of it, right? It kind of reminds me of The Irishman, right? Because it's how because of how much ground we cover in terms of um, the lives of these characters, right? We cover multiple, multiple years, right? Um, This is not kind of a... a, This isn't really a a snapshot thing. What I was actually saying is maybe it it has the sort of... 
I'm not even sure it would actually. I'm not really sure what I would necessarily compare it to. I think because it's simultaneously a very sad film and also a very angry film. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, it reminds me of the Irishman in terms of its scope and and length. Um, but in terms of other films, I, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with one to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I you know you could in terms of the um, the role. There's a little bit of everything in there because we even kind of like where religion comes into. You could even make a case for silence having some influence on this here. But I, I, I think, I think it's kind of its own beast once you layer all these these things in in together. Yeah. Um, I I was kind of surprised at how angry the film is about the treatment of the Osage and the role. And basically the society that kind of led the likes of William Hale, you know, I don't want to get into arguments about kind of like, you know, um, is evil is evil intrinsic in people and all this sort of thing. But like William Hale is definitely an, an evil man on the basis of the events of, of this film. I wasn't expecting the film to be quite so angry about the construction of society that leads him to act the way he does, right? The way that that, that evil, if it is in him, the, the way that that's acted out and how the, uh, you know, systemic racism and white privilege leads him to act when there is this situation that kind of upends the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's a, you know, and and do wrong, there are horrific bursts of violence in this, like you'll find in any other Scorsese film. But the the, the true horror here is really in the, the conversations, right? The casual way that people refer to it and and this sort of thing. It's um, so I'm struggling to find something that I would directly connect it to. But I think in terms of scope and timing, it is actually quite close to The Irishman, in my view. Um, but I think it deals with a lot more than The Irishman does. It's got broader themes, like The Irishman. I think is a much more internal film to kind of the you know the the character of frank but this one cuts across so many things great and that film is coming out very shortly um do you know when exactly it's coming out it is coming out on friday the 20th friday the 20th So, um, apart from these two big films, what other, I know you'll be talking about one in particular that's coming out in December, but, uh, what other films, um, that did you see or, uh, yeah, that, that, that really kind of struck, struck you? Uh, yeah. So I think the, the other two I'm going to mention, are so first of all, there were a couple of films that we actually already spoke about in the show that played it at, um, at London Girl, which we spoke about for the Glasgow Film Festival. And I think we all agreed that that was, that was a really excellent film that played here. Yep. Uh, in terms of other ones I saw, I saw a uh, Chilean film called Pino Cordillera, which I'm going to bring up because it's quite an interesting one to talk about briefly in light of the fact that we just reviewed El Conde not so long ago. And basically what this film does, it's, so that translates to Prison in the Andes, and it follows um, five high-ranking officials in the Chilean army under Pinochet who are now imprisoned in this kind of you know very luxurious prison, basically. Um but one of them gives a television interview. He's very unapologetic. He says one of the guards is just there to hold his cane. Um, and basically that's very poorly received. So their privileges start to get restricted. And it's how these 
how these arrogant, formerly powerful men react to that and, you know, their kind of relationship with the guards and into it's this very claustrophobic kind of uh, thriller. And it's a very, I, I have no idea whether, I don't think it's slated for a UK release right now. I have no idea whether it'll come out or not, but if it does, it's definitely worth checking out. And it's interesting because it goes, it does have this kind of like, just slightly comedic edge and it also looks at kind of the impact of Pinochet's regime on the Chilean psyche I think and what impact it has in lasting kind of societal trauma if you like and it was quite interesting to see it actually because I think that's something that El Conte looks to do but it does it it, it does it in a very different way right so I think it, that made for a quite an interesting piece of viewing um another film I saw which I'm going to mention which I do I do think will come out in the UK at some point I don't think it's got a release date right now um, the next place I know it's going to is Cambridge Film Festival, is uh, Horde, which is the first film from a filmmaker called Luna Car Moon. And I honestly thought it was I honestly thought it was excellent. By the time uh, this uh, show is broadcast, I think I will have a written review of it live on uh, takeonecinema.net. But really I think it's I think it's an excellent film. It's not perfect by any means. It starts to kind of fray a bit at the edges, but um, basically what it focuses on is it, it opens in 1984 with a young girl, Maria, um, who is basically dumpster diving and raiding bins with her mother, Cynthia. Um, and they go home and it becomes apparent that Cynthia has a, a mental block and an obsessive compulsion that causes her to kind of hoard rubbish and basically just other things that people have thrown away in her own stuff. Um, but her love for her daughter is very apparent and very clear but this kind of first segment of the film culminates in Maria having to go and live with a foster mother. Um, and we then jump forward 10 years to her now about to leave school. Um, and two things happen, right? First of all, she gets an untimely reminder kind of of her mother and her childhood. And kind of that starts to bring thoughts of it back and how she reacts to that. And also sexual tension with um, a former foster child of her foster mothers who's come home to visit uh, michael played by joseph quinn um and kind of the the chemistry and the connection they have which kind of starts to kind of like it's kind of a coming of age type thing but the thing but honestly this film is it's bold in how disgusting it is at times right as you can imagine with this idea of hoarding trash there's a lot of imagery that it, it juxtaposes love against kind of like you know rotting food and kind of like affection familial affection against like putting your hand in the decomposing rat carcass and things like and it's 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 fascinating the way that it plays these things off one another and the the older the performances across the board are, are great but the older maria played by uh sort of lightfeet leon is absolutely superb, right? It's a kind of total, you know, to use a cliche, fearless performance, and she throws herself right into it. It's it's still a debut feature. I don't think it's perfect. I think once we get to the the end, it starts to kind of, um, you know, d dive off down rabbit holes in terms of her internal thoughts that maybe kind of make it start to flow less well. But it's really bold, and that kind of pairing of disgusting visceral kind of imagery that gets a real kind of like reaction from you against these kind of like coming of age themes and i expect i mean we'll have some people jumping down my throat for this um but it actually remind me a lot of raw julia dorkenau's first film right um and just in terms of the way the the the, the places it's unafraid to go to in juxtaposing kind of uh, sexual tension with kind of 
sensory disgust and 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 things like that. I thought it was an absolutely fascinating film, and I'd be I'm very interested to see where Luna Carmen goes as a filmmaker after this. Uh, but that film in and of itself on its own terms, I think is is fascinating to watch. And I think the performances are like incredibly engaging. All right. So it sounds like there's a ton of great films happening right now in the London Film Festival as we're recording this and more to more to be had. Those um and one film that you both uh saw and be reviewing on this show is Eileen coming out and believe at the beginning of December in the UK. Uh, Simon, tell us a little bit about this film. Sure. So Eileen is uh directed by William Aldroyd and based on a novel by Otessa Meshveg. It follows uh Eileen, who is played by Thomas in McKenzie, in kind of 1960s New England, Eileen works at a prison uh, and looks after her father, who is an alcoholic ex-cop. And her life seems very small. She essentially just goes to the prison, buys gin for her father, uh, is unhappy at home. Her life is somewhat upended when a glamorous new prison counsellor arrives at the prison played by Anne Hathaway and they sort of come into contact and have this flirtatious ambiguous relationship uh, I won't say much more about the film from there but the kind of psychological thriller elements branch out from that point um, and yeah I, I would say it is heavily heavily Hitchcock inspired there's a very strong theme of of uh, influence of referencing Alfred Hitchcock's works um, from the kind of period um, old timey Universal logo at the start with kind of film grain that you can actually see on the production logos as they come up to the kind of misty setting of of this New England town where they live and the fact that it has uh, Anne Hathaway playing a traditional Hitchcock blonde called Rebecca, uh, of all things. Uh, so I liked it. I, I think it's a very weird film to talk about. It has a strange structure and a strange tone to it. But overall, I would say I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I I, I think I, I concur with that. It's um, there's a couple of there's a couple of moments in this film well, there's a moment which we'll talk about obliquely in a minute, and um, aspects of this film that I think you probably need to to go with to enjoy it, right? And in, in in my yeah. case, I did, right? And I think the um, I think the, the 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 most effective thing for me, besides kind of just the general look and feel of the film, which Simon has has put across really pretty well, there is um. Thomas and Mackenzie, who plays Eileen, right? Her performance, I think, is excellent. She, she she's an actor that I'm I'm quite a big quite a big fan of ever since um, uh, Leave No Trace, right? Which was kind of the first first time I I came across came across her, and I think she's yeah. done a lot of, a lot of a lot of good work, and she's also done some good work in some not so good films. Um, but you know, she's she's superb, and I think 
the way that she carries herself because she doesn't necessarily she doesn't have a huge amount of dialogue i mean like you know it's not it's not a silent film or anything like that but you know no, it's, but she, um, she's a very quiet mousy kind of yeah exactly right woman. so she's needing to put uh, put across a lot of eileen's character and frame of mind about kind of this small town slightly banal setting she finds herself in with an abusive father really um it needs to come across a lot in expressions and tone and body language. And I think she does that really superbly. So when Rebecca and Hathaway's character, the the new prison uh, psychiatrist comes into her life, you really beyond kind of like Hathaway's screen presence and, and like, as Simon's put across, like she's also meant to kind of like pop out from the screen in comparison to the other characters, right? Just in the way that she dresses the hairstyle um, the way that she handles a cigarette, like all the, the the confidence with which she speaks, she's meant to pop out. But I think you really get across the way that that kind of just kind of awakens Eileen and makes her just more interested in uh, herself, Rebecca, and the world in general. I think Thomas and Mackenzie's um, Thomas and Mackenzie's performance there is, is great. I think another thing to put across with that is. Is also the costuming, right? So in terms of how Eileen dresses before and after, and she starts wearing her uh, deceased mother's like fur coats and things like that, and embraces these things that uh, Rebecca likes, like cigarettes and things like that. It's just it, overall, it's a really good performance. I think how you come away from this film feeling um, probably depends a little bit on how you feel about the direction the film goes in after a certain point, right? So we build to this point and there's quite a lot of, you know, tension between these two characters. Um, and then the the film kind of takes a slight tonal shift at some, at, at one point. And it really depends on how well you go with that. I think Now I went with it. I thought it was great. I really quite enjoyed it. And I think where the film goes after that point makes fantastic use of the way they've built Eileen, as a character to that point, right? And you like basically nothing. This tonal shift that I'm talking about, nothing. It feels sudden and it feels shocking in the way it's meant to, right? I think everything that then follows after that um, doesn't feel inorganic, right? It all kind of feels a part of the the character that you've you you've kind of you know established to that point. So for me, it works. I I can see how it might not for others. Um, on a less narrative standpoint, I really like to look at the film. Um, you know, so this is shot by... So the director is William Oldroyd, who... This is the first film of his I've seen, but I think most folk will probably have come across him for uh, Lady Macbeth, the Florence Pugh film from about seven or eight years ago now. And this is shot by Ari Wegner, who shot that film, and uh, a, a bunch of... A bunch of other ones. I think the one that she shot most recently would probably be familiar as the Power of the Dog, right? Which I also thought looked absolutely superb. Um, so there's a lot to like about this film. I like the central performances. I like the way the the boldness of the tonal shift it goes through. I think it looks great. Um, it, Simon's right in the sense it's a strange little film. The tone is very kind of unsettling and off kilter right and I, but I think if you if you go with that and you go with the tonal shift you'll get a lot out of this there's a lot to like there's a very specific vibe to the film mm -hmm. uh, and as you've said the success of the film depends on how into that vibe you are i think at a certain point which you've alluded to um 
so I, I've read uh, other reviews. I've read negative reviews, which seem to come down to not keying into that vibe, not getting it, quote unquote. Uh, and I, I've read letterbox reviews, which essentially say if you don't get it, you won't get it. Because I think that there's something very specific at work here, a specific tone, a specific vibe. Um, and I, I mentioned the Hitchcock influences. I think it treads the line very carefully between um, homage and parody. I, I think at certain points, it almost feels like it's going to tip over the edge into into parody of Hitchcock. Um, and the, 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 there were some lines that got laughs in, in my screening, but I'm not sure the filmmaker intended to get laughs. But I think for me, it stayed on the right side of that line of homage and, and didn't leap over into a sense of ridiculousness. Um, and I came out thinking of uh, Paul Fage's film, A Simple Favor, which, if you've seen it, becomes a very ridiculous film and is also about the intertwining of, of two women kind of psychologically and, and quasi-sexually. And so that film leapt over the edge of ridiculousness in a way that this doesn't but friends to you know yeah I think that's fair um, I think something that I do something that I find interesting about the kind of the, the Hitchcock analogies is this it, it does find time to make itself its own beast as well and I think I think this is also part of whether how well you go with it, right? Because it's, it's certainly not the first film to have done this, and it won't be the last. But one thing that's quite striking about it is the way that Eileen's dissatisfaction with her kind of general situation mm -hmm. plays out. Is we get quite a lot of um, segments which basically violently depict like acts of violence or self harm, which like are not shot any differently to the film itself it's not at all obvious that that's what it is um before we kind of like basically smash cut back to reality and basically you realize that it's a, it's a violent intrusive thought on the on the part of eileen right and this mm -hmm. this is another way in which he kind of gets subtly across her her frame of mind um so in terms of kind of like it being a sort of you know thrillery setup it does take time to to sit with that character it just it does it in ways that aren't you know um, just spelling it out basically, right? And I, I there's a, there's a lot there's a lot that I liked about it in in that regard, right? It kind of keeps you, it keeps you on edge, and part of that strange tone is by things like that, right? This depiction of these violent intrusive thoughts that she has, um, you know, against either herself or her father, and 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 things like that, right? Um, so. Yeah, it's a very specific tone. It's a very specific tone, and I think if you if you can if you can sit with that and enjoy the performances and kind of you know sit with kind of like that lack of knowledge about where it's going, mm -hmm. then you'll get a, you'll get a lot out of it. But if you don't, it maybe primes you a little bit less for that tonal shift that I've re I've referred to. Um, I've seen some people refer to it as a plot twist. I don't think it is a plot twist, right? Um, you know, I do think it's a Personally, I find I find it to be a tonal shift, and there's enough of the film left that I think it it then plays out kind of as logically as it can from that point, which is why I'm mentioning it. I don't really consider it a spoiler. The film kind of shifts gear, you know, when it comes into its its home street. I don't think that should be of a surprise to anyone. Um, 
but yeah, it's it it I think I personally think it sets up and executes that well uh, because of the development of the tone that Simon's spoken about. But I I could see how if you don't if you don't find yourself settling into that, then it does make it harder for that shift to to land well. I think. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it a twist either. It's it's clearly a shift, but it is uh, set up. And it's obvious throughout the film that this tension has to be building to something. Yeah, absolutely. There, yeah. there was a point where I thought this tension has been building for a while. I I do hope something's going to happen soon. I hope the shoe drops soon. And it was shortly after that that what we're alluding to actually happened. Uh, so I was quite pleased with how it managed that tension, which builds steadily and steadily and steadily and then explodes at a certain point. Yeah. Mm. Okay, great. Well, that's so. Thank you both for your uh, take on the London Film Festival, and just uh, uh, curious what you're excited to see next. Not just the London Film Festival, but what's coming up. It's, it's a big, lots of new films coming out. Yeah, I mean, I want to see Killers of the Flower Moon, especially mm -hmm. after hearing Jim talk about it. Yeah. And um, but also, as I've said, I'm excited to see the Zone of Interest, new Jonathan Glazer film, um, which I think is out in december maybe I'm, I'm not sure um but yeah looking forward to 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 that yeah i mean off the back of festival season there's just there's a lot of films of interest to see so i mentioned i mentioned a you know a, a couple already in daniel cocotalio and um uh, so Daniel Cogadow, Star Vaker, and then Christos Niku's new film, Fingernails. I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to see them. Uh, the Assistant, I thought, was an excellent film. So the Royal Hotel, Kitty Green's new film. I'd be very interested to see that. These are all films that are going to be coming out um, pretty soon. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, I might be tempted to go see it again, to be perfectly honest <laughs> with you. Um, you know, and there, there, there's other films just coming out kind of, you know, that I think will are just going to be interested to see. Those are the main ones that I can uh, probably think of, but then there's smaller films like uh, 20,000 Species of Bees, uh, the David Fincher film, The Killer, that Simon mentioned, like that's going to be coming out. I'd be very interested to see that. Michael Fass, and you know, we'll see why I haven't read any reviews of that on any of its festival run, but the concept of pairing David Fincher and Michael Fassbender seems like a pretty good match to me. Um, I, I think that could be, that could be a, a really kind of interesting film. Um, yep. and then there's a whole bunch of stuff at uh, Cambridge Film Festival, which I'll be interested to see. Like, I so Simon reviews at Glasgow Film Festival, and I would quite like to see typist artist pirate king Carol Morley's new film. Um, yep. you know, just on, off the back of kind of like this run of festivals, you know, from Can in May through to you know Venice last month in October and London this month. There's a lot of the films that were at that are now going to start coming to cinemas, and I think I'll be very keen to see a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. I I noticed that um the that Carol Morley's film is is out after we reviewed it on the Glasgow Film Festival, and um also just a shout out to uh, Smoke Sauna Sisterhood that's going around um the UK right now. We and interviewed Anna Hintz last last month, and the film is out in cinemas across the UK. And actually, Anna's doing a uh, UK tour of Q and A as well. So um very sort of exciting. So thank you again for joining us and uh, for this London Film Festival's coverage, but I really appreciate it and see you soon.
I'm back and I'm here with Paul Bruce and Jamie Robson as part of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Uh, Paul, you, Paul was our host for many years and hopefully coming back uh, to do some interviews in the future. But Paul, welcome back to the Cinetopia Radio Show and Podcast. And uh, to, congratulations on 13 years uh, as head of Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Hi, Amanda. Yeah, thanks for having us back. It's lovely to be here uh, again. Um, yeah, 13th edition. Um, we're not superstitious at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. He says, looking around for some wood to touch. Um, but yeah, we're delighted to be screening again this year. It uh, runs from October 26th to November the 5th. So tell me a little bit about the program this uh, year. Uh, quite a lot of films. Uh, you'll be screening over a course of two weekends, starting on the twenty sixth. Uh, what, what do you, what do we have in store, and what should we look out look out for? Yeah, that's right. We're screening um, eighty plus short films from uh, every corner really of the world, and uh, it's a jam packed program. It's running kind of similar to previous years, so. There's uh, six in competition programs, um, including a lot of award winners from around the world, Scottish and UK-based films. Um, there's a bunch of workshops and some curated programs from guest programmers. We've got uh, some outstanding films this year. I'm really pleased to screen a really wonderful drama from Tibet, which um, I think did pretty well. Um, we're also screening a lot of outstanding animation, including Belgian animation. There's an amazing stop motion from Estonia at, um, by Pretender, which is uh, very reminiscent of Jan Zvankmeyer, if your uh, listeners are old enough to remember. And it also won the Best Animation Awards at the Tampere Film Festival. Um, there's uh, incredible experimental documentaries as well. There's one um, by a Colombian, uh, couple of Colombian filmmakers, which is... Um, amazing to look at, very um, deep and profound story behind it. Um, there's uh, also Canadian animation, which is based on phonotropes, which is using record players to create uh, moving images. Um, plus there's all range, really. I could go on Turkish documentary, there's um, Moroccan thrillers, um, there's Canadian drama, there's American indie cinema. So yeah, it's jam-packed, really, every night. And one film you're screening is uh, Archivia, which is done by a, a British filmmaker. And Jamie, you have been in quite a few films that have been at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Tell us about your experience being in the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, but also this film in particular, why you're excited to share that here. Thanks. Yeah, um, yeah the festival has been a great support uh, throughout my career. And uh, like you said, I've had a few uh films there over the years and uh charlotte wells's film previous to after sun blue christmas which won the best scottish short i think in 2018 maybe um so yeah i've got a long history and uh i just think it's a great event you know and uh paul does a fantastic job and it it's got a very broad spectrum of participants and films and um it does a really a really good job of supporting the industry. Um, so yeah, Archivia's uh, screening this year, which was uh, by director Ross Wilson, who I've worked with before. Uh, and it's just, a, it was a, a real adventure from beginning to end, you know. Um, it's privately funded and uh, we shot it on film, on celluloid, and uh, he made it in a really interesting way, sort of gathered footage, uh, 
in a sort of documentarian style and then um, found the film really in post. And um, there's this use of archive footage and uh, an incredible sound design and the whole thing's just a sort of study of the Scottish landscape and ecology and, and you know, environmental issues. But yeah, I'm very, very proud of it. It's one of my most, you know, proudest pieces to date. So it's great to see at the festival. Wonderful. And you've also part of uh, another film that's in the festival as well, um, A90, correct? Yes. So um, A90 is by Olivia Middleton and uh, it was shot by a really talented cinematographer called Leon Brioni. And I've worked again with Olivia before. So um, collaboration and re-collaboration is something that I'm proud of. I guess it's a, it's a, a good sign that things are... Um, very different, you know, A90 is publicly funded, digital and uh, colour, whereas obviously Archive is black and white and shot in film. Um, but yeah, so a very different experience, but equally enjoyable and another uh, film that I'm proud of. And uh, uh, it's, it's nice to have two very different, uh, t you know, types of film at the festival. This shows the festival's got such a wide um spectrum and uh, broad interest in different filmmakers and filmmaking and uh yeah uh I I'm really excited to see Archivia on the big screen particularly because of the just the visuals uh and and the sound design and the score it's it's going to be quite an experience great and so this is uh so so apart from the various screenings and programs that are sort of put together at Summer Hall. You also have a bunch of other kinds of events related to. So, so over the years, you've really made con. Uh, Paul, you've made contact with connections with other short film festivals or other film festivals around the world. And you often, oftentimes, the short film festival becomes a place where you just, you know, it's a, you bring other film film directors. Um, can you talk a little bit about the other programs that you have on offer? as part of this 13th edition. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, part of it really is to bring film um, makers, film people together um, to learn from each other and, and just to experience some of the different approaches taken, not just here, but, you know, across Europe and so on. So we have um European Film Festival, and like, we've been doing that since um, since Brexit, actually, because it's also quite important to keep cultural links with uh, mainland Europe, as we all know. Um, we've been doing that for years. This year, we're delighted to welcome the Budapest Short Film Festival, uh, Shortcuts in Amsterdam, uh, FICBO, which is a Galician film festival, has been going for 16 years, and um, the Adriatic Film Festival. So they'll be screening uh, some of their, uh, this year's, uh, 2022's best films from these festivals, and then afterwards we'll be holding a panel discussion with them, uh, really just to explore the differences and, and also the similarities uh, between filmmakers and film programmers across Europe. So that's on Saturday, November the 4th. Um, we've also got um, a programme curated by the Belgian Short Film Commission. Uh, Belgium's really got an amazing background in uh, commissioning short film. I, I don't know how many they do, but it must be hundreds. Uh, they've got three particular departments. There's one for Bologna, one for Flanders and Brussels. And they produce outstanding shorts. They really put a lot of money and effort into into creating excellence in the short film. So we're, we're delighted to have a program uh, curated by the Belgian Short Film Commission. And that's on November the 3rd, uh, Friday, November the 3rd. We've also 
got uh, so Arcavia is going to be screening as part of our Scottish Shorts Night, which we're also co-curating with GMAC in Glasgow, and that's going to be just exclusively Scottish Shorts, and that's on Saturday the 29th at Summer Hall, 7.30, and then we're doing masterclasses and workshops, there's a workshop on low-budget filmmaking, so there's a panel discussion which will include Jamie, as well as um, uh, people from GMAC, there'll be producers and directors, uh, and we'll be discussing aspects of short film from location, budgeting, etc. That's free. Uh, also, the two other free m- workshops we've got are a phone and tablet masterclass and a stop motion workshop as well. Uh, tickets for those are available just now online. Uh, so yeah, and then there's of course our opening night. We have, I think, Cinetopia guesting, haven't you? You're coming along, so we lovely to see you again. Uh, that's part of our opening night, so you'll be doing networking during the night. Uh, we'll be doing the screening, so we'll pop in and out. That looks like being fun. Yeah, thanks for the plug there. Cinetopia Networking is happening on the 26th. Uh, we'll start a little bit earlier than normal, and we'll continue on uh, and let people go to the uh, screenings and then come back. But it's always a good way to start the festival and love to be connected with the Short Film Festival in lots of ways. Um, Jamie, uh, you mentioned that you're going to be part of a panel. You were part of a panel last year uh, around uh, budgeting and short films. Why do you think it's important that these festivals share kind of like insider knowledge um, and, you know, and have these sort of events for people to learn about actual filmmaking? Yeah, well, I think particularly the UK, um, we don't necessarily have an infrastructure that, you know, exists in in somewhere like the States or, or, or somewhere like Portugal, um, both very different infrastructures for filmmakers, but both in a way more robust in the current setup here. And because finance is increasingly difficult, um, I think understanding the value and the process of low budget filmmaking is really, really important. And I think, you know, the festival focuses on shorts and we're going to talk about you know, shorts, we'll maybe touch upon low budget features as well in, um, uh, you know, internet series or, 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 um, television, but, uh, it's so important because the funding bodies and the, 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 the opportunities to get a public funding are, are limited, understandably, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's maybe 10 spaces each year uh, uh, in Scotland for a short film to be publicly funded. Which means, you know, there's a lot that leaves out a a huge percentage of people who are going to have to look at alternatives, whether it's crowdfunding, private funding, um, and so on and so forth, or any sort of amalgamation of various ways. And um, just realising that there is a way forward that it's 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 not the end if you don't get backed by a, a funding body or or a public organisation, and that um, uh, that's Paul's phone. Don't worry, we'll leave that in for authenticity and a a sign of r- gritty realism. Um, yeah. So uh, I I mean, and I've had the experience of working with you know a short film made for two hundred pounds, a short film for two thousand pounds, a short film for twenty thousand pounds, publicly funded shorts privately funded shorts, uh, ones that have gone to huge international uh, festivals such as Sundance and ones that haven't gotten to any festivals. So I I do have a lot of experience to share. I'm really passionate about short films because I really, my career really 
was founded on short films before I transitioned to features and television. And um, I think at the moment, pause, there's not really a culture for low budget features, which is a big issue that I have a, I'm really passionate about trying to change. I think shorts are an opportunity to make mistakes, trial and error in a safe environment before you're given the responsibility of a six million debut feature, if you're lucky enough to get there. Um, which is kind of ridiculous if you think about it, that people are expected to do two or three shorts and suddenly go into development for an eight million feature. Whereas if there was a culture of, you know, making more short films, building a, a bigger body of work um, where you could really find your voice and uh, and develop that uh, and, and garner a lot more experience. Uh, I just think, you know, short films are, are essential in the UK and we could we could give them more attention and a, a, a bigger platform and knowing how to do it on a budget is important because like I said, money's scarce. So. so yeah, I'm looking forward to the panel. It was a good one last year and uh, I think anyone interested in filmmaking um, should come. Yeah. One of the things I really like about the Short Film Festival, so first festival I volunteered for when I first moved to Edinburgh and have been part of it since then in lots of ways, and um, is just how friendly of a festival it is and how many, you, I really applaud you giving lots of people great experiences and lots of, met lots of friends through it. Um, what what drives you to run this festival like for 13 years and are the things that you certain you take away every year that you really enjoy about the about the festival itself yeah i mean i think i think obviously the big buzz is when you you put a program on everybody loves it i think that's the same for anyone you know any film programmer um that that's really the excitement it's also about meeting people um, and then networking and socialising and making new friends, really. So those two things are, are the chief things I get out of it, I guess. Um, it's always a, an honour and a privilege, really, to run in resorts. But, um, yeah, when you get to it, it's, it's also quite quite a lot of work. Um, so, yeah, it can be quite... At the same time, you're, you've got the buzz, but at the same time, you're kind of like, well, I'm getting older. Uh, so exhausted, um, et cetera, bandy-legged, um, <laughs> So yeah, um, but no, it's uh, it's wonderful and really enjoy it. But those are the two main things. Really, that's what I always look forward to, especially on opening night and closing night. Um, but yeah, so a lot to look forward to, and the films themselves as well, because every year there are a number of standouts that you really want to see on a big screen uh, with a decent sound system. You know, so yeah, so that's and obviously meeting you again. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, and uh, Jamie, you've been at the Short Film Festival a few times um, and have been involved with it. Um, what makes, what do you think makes the Edinburgh Short Film Festival special? Again, I think just the programming. I think the the broad range of films, um, both indigenous and international, and you know the the Paul's got his own interest in animation, having had some success with animation in the past. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's uh, documentary, there's drama, there's animation, there's, um, you know, it's, it's just a, a very diverse mix of, of programming, which makes a very, you know, rich experience. And um, it's, and it's a great space for, you know, people who come that are veterans have been in the industry for 10, 20 plus years and have won major awards, but it's in the same space, there's new talent, new filmmakers, people that are looking to maybe 
first time, you know, and I think that's a really exciting space that Paul creates, the festival creates, and it's got such a good reputation. Quite competitive now. There's quite a lot of films, right, uh, that you, you get a lot of submissions, don't you? Uh, yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, it was uh, 1,700 this year. So I think if you got, get in, it's an achievement in itself. I mean, if you get into any festival, really, it's still a pretty big achievement. I think there's so many more people making shorts. Uh, it's easier to do so. Um, in fact, it'll become even easier if you go to your phone and tablet masterclass. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so you've got all these avenues now that people... And also, you don't necessarily just go from short film to feature film. There's a lot of other different routes people can take now, so... Uh, so it's an expanding field, but uh, yeah, it's um, excellence. I think also what systems are better, editing systems and so on. So the, the finished film usually is a higher standard now than it was 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, so there's all those factors, I think, take, take um, you know, have an influence on, on the number of films and the quality, et cetera, of the programming. I would agree over the course of the fat past few years i really think the actual quality level of the film making and the cinematography is just is exceptional and uh having got to see quite a few for uh, making the trailer it, it it really it's going to be some really beautiful uh films on screen and animations and all different kinds of films uh so the edinburgh short film festival 13th edition 26th of october to the 5th of november and uh, we will be there on the 26th. We'll be there more more days than the 26th. Definitely on the 26th. Come to Cenotopia Networking and the opening night of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Also, if you want to see Jamie, he's appearing in A90 on Thursday the 26th October and Archivia, screen, Archivia Screens on Saturday the 29th. Thank you very much. We'll see you there. Thank you. Thank you.